This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We talk the ultimate odd couple with David Ryan Polger, divorce coaching with Matthew Frey, and learn what my life purpose is with hand analyst Laura Gibson. Dating in a time of COVID? Should you meet online first or talk on the phone? Moa Mayer shares his story. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Uh, he writes about emerging technology, tech ethics, and internet culture. He's a Harvard grad. He's also a tech ethicist. He is David Ryan Polger, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, David. Hey, how's it going, Maureen? How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Great, great. Now, David, you wrote an article for Forbes magazine about the ultimate odd couple, Trump and (laughs) Twitter. (laughs) They are an odd couple. Yeah, uh, a lot of people are wondering what this fight is all about because you see it coming from both ends. You have a lot of pressure on Jack Dorsey, a CEO uh, and co-founder of Twitter, to really uh, cut down on a lot of the potentially inflammatory tweets uh, from President Donald Trump. But then you also have Donald Trump, who is uh, threatening to to regulate uh, Twitter. And what he's referring to is uh, something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which offers social media companies uh, limited liability if they are considered merely the conduit for the content as opposed to the publisher. So basically, because uh, Trump's tweet is considered his speech, Twitter is merely hosting it. Uh, so they offered a lot of limited liabilities for these these companies early on when, when they were thinking about the rise of the Internet. Right. So this is a dysfunctional re- relationship of which I speak <laughs> of least, yes. frequently yeah. on this show. And um, which are but oftentimes, even in a dysfunctional relationship, there's codependency. That's often mm-hmm. part of it. So why does Trump need Twitter and why does Twitter need Trump? Well, if you think about the very rise of, of Trump as a political figure uh, was highly unlikely. Uh, don't forget, uh, you know, his rise did start with, uh, you know, misinformation around uh, President Barack Obama about his, his birthplace. And a lot of that really was through through Twitter. So his actual rise as a figure, uh, of not just a reality show figure, but a political figure, uh, really comes largely from the back of Twitter as an amplifier of a message. And I think there are a lot of people um, get confused as they think of social media as merely just a just a megaphone. And, and I think that's a limited understanding because it really can amplify. What, one of the things that we're learning is that uh, it, it's not merely about Trump sending it over to his followers. It's about putting it in a platform that can easily spider out and then and then go viral. Uh, because it's it, it's something where uh, you kind of have to ask the question, well, Trump could easily just go to another platform, right? He's already on Facebook. Uh, but why doesn't he just rely on Facebook? He doesn't rely on Facebook because his engagement is so much higher uh, on, on Twitter for every tweet that he, he sends. And that's why uh, for a while he's been averaging 106 uh, you know, tweets. Uh, a day, so he's, he's a very high, highly active user uh, of this. So it's a little, a little interesting for him to be seemingly so against it and criticizing Twitter, but at the same time, uh, he certainly would would uh, be, uh, you know, heart. Uh, his heart would sink if Twitter cut the uh, cut his account, which theoretically, under their terms of service, uh, it is something that they could do. 
I think they are not doing it because it's a political question, not merely a question of a business decision. Right. I mean, I remember thinking earlier on, um, you know, the president is tweeting. You know, it just seems so odd. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we yeah. all took yeah. our time getting used to Twitter. And, and then, you know, you know, when we stopped reading newspapers because we were getting our news on Twitter. And, and now you hear, you know, national news organizations, you know, quoting Twitter quite, quite yes. frequently. Yeah. Um, I have a uh, it's been suggested that Trump. Um, he triggers uh, Democrats <laughs> through mm-hmm. some of his tweets and does this intentionally. Uh, is that something you see uh, him doing? Oh, yeah. I, I think it, it's uh, a lot of people would, would look at his behavior and say that it's, it's operating in a certain kind of uh, troll capacity in, in order for realizing what would trigger certain behavior. Because if you think about it, we live in what they like to call an attention economy where the, the key part is, are you gathering eyeballs? Are you getting somebody's attention? The worst thing that could, Trump could ever have is for people not to pay attention to him, right? Because he, he needs to fire up both people because if he fires up Democrats, then it fires up his base as a reaction to that. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does seem like uh, a lot of the tweets might be intentionally written in a, in a way that it's, uh, it's going to kind of incite uh, a certain high emotional kind of capacity. But the other part, Maureen, with the with the kind of, uh, you know, odd relationship that Twitter and, and Trump have that I would say with it, too, is Twitter also needs Trump because Trump gives them legitimacy. Because to your point, people are talking about Twitter as 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 news. Right. We're getting a lot of our news through what's being tweeted, whereas that could easily go away. I mean, the the, the Internet is, is, is a graveyard of of uh, social media platforms that were hot for a minute you know, and then have now disappeared, you know, and, and that's easily could happen to, to Twitter. That's right. And and do you think that the president of the United States is, is cr- crafting all of these tweets by himself? Or do you think he has a group of people? <laughs> or, and well, is he addicted? I will, is I he... will say, given, given the amount of, of, there's been a bunch of typos where then he'll send out a tweet and then have to erase it later. So it does, frankly, seem like, uh, like he is, uh, crafting a lot of these, uh, you know, himself. So it kind of gives you the imagination that, uh, you know, he's walking around kind of like in his pajamas and, and you know, getting angry watching uh, watching the news and tweeting, yeah. which I guess, uh, you know, to to his to his base that that appeals to the base because they say, look, listen, this guy has no no filter. It's not a PR communications machine. So I think that's something that actually uh, appeals to, to his specific base. Absolutely. I mean, anyway, it's 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 head scratching, but but I think he's uh, utilized uh, Twitter like any genius might. I mean, in a way, he's been a little bit genius about that. It's a great article that you wrote. Uh, Trump is in a feud with Twitter, but they both desperately need each other. And that's in Forbes magazine. So David Ryan Polger, thank you so much for joining me this evening and clarifying on this dysfunctional relationship. It was great to, great to chat with you, Mari. Always great to chat with you, David. Okay. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, and joining me on the line is Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach and writer who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes he did. He got divorced because he left dishes by the sink. Matt writes about that and so much more on his blog. And I've been following the Good Men Project blog for a while now, but I didn't meet him there. I met him in the New York Times. Good evening, Matt. How are you doing? 
Good evening, Maureen. I'm well. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you had a great article in the New York Times talking about all of the work that you do, all the fine work that you do, talking about uh, the unspeakable often at times or things that in particular men won't talk about. You know, men maybe, dare I say, not as in touch with emotions or understanding what responsibilities they might have that may be contributing to relationship issues, but you predominantly work with men to prevent divorce and also help others who have been through a divorce and possibly don't want to make the same mistake twice. Yeah, that's exactly right. I am a child of divorce and I was divorced myself seven years ago. I generally am uncomfortable with a divorce and what I mean by that is I'm not I'm not a marriage advocate per se and I certainly would never want two people to be together if they a didn't want to or B it was like an unhealthy or toxic relationship but when I think about marriage I think about this idea that two people chose it intentionally and, the, and they really meant it right they, they, they knew the stakes that they were getting into and then they get married voluntarily and they understand this to be this lifelong agreement and they really think it's going to be this great thing and then so often people sort of accidentally without even really being able to explain how they got there, find themselves five to 10 to 15 years later in this really sort of painful and dysfunctional and sad relationship and communication's awful and intimacy is down or non-existent and trust is broken. When I say not get divorced in this context, what I'm really advocating for is healthy relationships because I perceive no matter how successful we are in all walks of life, if our relationships suffer, if home is bad, if family is fractured, then everything's going to feel bad. So I'm just trying to fight for that because I think a lot of people are missing the ingredients of what makes a healthy relationship. They certainly are. And so in the intro, I said that you got divorced because you left dishes by the sink. That's probably a little bit of tongue in cheek, but it is some of those everyday things that can annoy a partner in a relationship sort of being out of touch. So talk to me a little bit about how people can be more in touch with themselves and their relationship. These are the conversations I'm having uh, pretty much daily. But the dish by the sink, absolutely, tongue-in-cheek, it's metaphor. It's sort of true in my case. And I could have used 30 other examples of things in my marriage. But the idea really is that there were these things that mattered to my wife. And I treated them as if they were inconsequential, as if her reacting emotionally to me the way that she did about it felt out of proportion with how much value I had on it, meaning... I just by the sink, I, I just don't care. My crime, if you will, was using my own metric for what matters in life, for what's important, and forcing that on my wife and then and judging her and evaluating her behavior through that prism. Uh, when the reality is, another human being is allowed to care, to feel strongly about anything they naturally care about or feel strongly about. When we're married to them and we don't show up for them and say, hey, I know that this matters to you, so I'm going to value it and respect it because you matter to me, because I love you. Our failure to do that dooms us. People that really, truly love their partners are missing this like nuanced conversation about how our failure to respect the things your partner values. And, and that makes me think about the blame in relationships. And so I can just hear that narrative because I have a clinical practice as well uh, for couples in sexless marriages. And I can hear the narrative, which is, you know, she is, you know, so nasty. She got upset that I left a dish by the sink. 
And so that's really dismissing somebody, isn't it? It, it really is. Uh, so I've been telling this story a lot lately, and I'm sort of glad you segued to that. I had a client recently who is in a relationship in which healthy eating is very, very important to them, in which there's sort of this, this agreement, this bond, that they're going to eat this really healthy, disciplined, vegan you know, diet. And he had like a work emergency and we've got like this COVID problem where a lot of restaurants are shut down and he was starving, he said. So he gets a fish sandwich not long before our scheduled coach client call. And he gets, you know, gets on the phone and says, Matt, you got to help me out. You know, my wife is texting me and she's giving me crap about wondering, wanting to know what I eat for lunch. And she's going to be so mad at me. She's going to freak out and she's going to be angry with me and create a marriage fight because I got a fish sandwich. How insane is that? I sort of nodded and I said, you know, I really get it. And, and I bet when you tell all your guy friends the story, they all nod along too and say, yeah, man, your wife's crazy for overreacting to you getting a fish sandwich. And then I said, but what if we have the real conversation? Do you and your wife have an agreement that you promised one another you were going to live by in the context of your diet? And he said, yeah, of course. I promised my wife I was going to eat this like disciplined vegan diet and we were going to do it together. And I said, so let's just be really clear about what's going on here. Your wife's not overreacting. Your wife is reacting emotionally to being betrayed to having a promise broken, to feeling like trust in your relationship is non-existent. This non-generous narrative of, of sort of characterizing people as freaking out over these small things is how I think a lot of men, and certainly how I, I think maybe sort of did the mental dance to justify everything that I did or defend myself, when the reality is a, a little more sort of serious and painful than that. His wife experienced a betrayal and his failure to show up and own that and, and take responsibility for not doing things like that moving forward so that she can feel safe and loved in their relationship, it's a very painful thing. And people, independent of gender and relationships everywhere, experience things like that all the time with zero validation, support, understanding from anybody, certainly not their partner. And so is he invalidating her? And, and if so, what are some of the ways good people who, you know, go into a marriage with all good intention invalidate their partners and ruin relationships? I think, I, I don't like picking on men, but it, the truth is I think it shows up most common in male behavior. Maureen, this is the way that I usually talk about it. I usually ask guys if this rings a bell with them, and they pretty much always say yes. Often our wives and our girlfriends will come to us with a problem. They're, they're trying to communicate that something happened and it made them feel bad. And in their mind, they are communicating that a bad thing happened. It's not okay. They're trying to recruit us to help them. So we can cooperatively like, work together so that the bad thing doesn't happen in the future and they don't have to feel pain or fear or sadness or whatever it is anymore. And this is the way they're male partners. This is the way I responded to my wife when that happened. There's three common ways. The first way is to say, deny that the story happened the way she told it, right? Say, actually, it didn't happen that way at all. Uh, the second way to respond to that is, well, sure, it happened just like you said, but your emotional reaction is like super out of touch with reality. Why are you making this bigger than it was? We agree that it happened, but their feelings are still invalid. They don't matter. And then the third way I did this and perceive a lot of men to do it is simply to explain it, to defend not in that even like immature way, that childlike way of being defensive and say, well, here is why I did it this way. The common denominator in all three of these things is that their feelings don't matter. And I think that the really, really scary one is the third one. Really, really good people do this all the time. We just try to explain ourselves because we feel as if, if they understand our thinking, they'll all of a sudden get to kind of rethink their emotions and be like, that makes so much sense. But what I think our partners experience, and Maureen, you might have a better sense of this than I do, frankly, this is just a guess on my part. 
but what I perceive my wife to have felt and what I perceive like a lot of these wives to feel uh, with the men that I'm working with, that they're concluding that these guys are saying in a future scenario in which these same conditions exist, I'm going to make the same decision. Not only are they not validating the pain from right now, they're sort of promising they're going to do it again. And I think a wife or a girlfriend who hears from their partner that they're likely to be hurt or damaged again in, in this intentional way, in this, hey, I'm choosing this because it makes sense to me way. Who wants to stay in a relationship in which that condition exists? Exactly. Um, um, and, and you have a much better understanding now, which is why you have become the man who coaches husbands on how to do- avoid divorce. (laughs) Where can people read the article? The article in the New York Times ran on May 18th, 2020. And I honestly think uh, a quick Google of relationship coach and Matthew Frey will get you there. And following you on Twitter, which is MBTTTR on Twitter. And (laughs) and it's up there as well. And so, of course, I'm following you now. Matthew, thank you so much for contributing to the program and providing great information. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, not just men, who would benefit from your information and experience. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Maureen. I really appreciate this. You've heard his voice before. He is clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Thanks for joining me. Good evening, Maureen. I'm always honored to be on with you, but (laughs) you as Barbara Streisand is uh, an extra bonus. This evening, so uh, <laughs> I was partic- thinking. I'm particularly privileged here. <laughs> um, the way we were. <laughs> uh, anyway, I could be a memory very soon <laughs> if I keep singing. Um, Dr. Parhar, I needed a doctor <laughs> today. <laughs> well, the last couple of days, I actually thought I, I started to have um, some chest wall pain in the lower right hand side, and it, of course, immediately I thought, "This is um, my. This is a rub. This is." pain. This is COVID-19. <laughs> anyway, and then I realized, no, no, it was that huge spill that I took on my paddleboard uh, last Sunday. <laughs> and so it's probably a soft tissue injury, but it was it resulted in a significant amount of pain for me and, and some loss of sleep over the last couple of nights. Um, so, but we are going to be talking about COVID-19. I'm sure it's not, I know for me, it's not the first time I've thought I had it. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people think they have it. They might get a sniffle or a bit of a sore throat or whatever and think, oh my gosh, is, is this it? Uh, you know, is this it? Um, and so we're looking at going back to school. And by the way, if you have a question for the fine doctor, the number to call is one 877 That's one 877 we're looking at opening up the schools in many places in Canada. And, and in fact, in the East Coast, in Quebec, they opened up and there were a number of cases of COVID-19. So there's a lot of fear in the lives and the minds of parents um, sending their children back to school, even if it is only for you know, four days in the month for some high schools, for example, or every other day. Uh, what do you suggest? What are your thoughts on heading back to school? Yeah, Maureen, it's been a very topical um, topic this past week. I've been speaking to a lot of not just parents, but a lot of teachers and educational assistants. And um, there's a a pretty heightened anxiety over this. 
And ultimately, I think what's happening in BC is what the World Health Organization is recommending when schools start to reopen, which is that there's several criteria that need to be met. The number of cases need to be under control. We able to, need to be able to quickly identify and trace and then and then um, track where, where those cases are and where they're going. But ultimately, when kids start going back, um, we know that children are um, less likely to get seriously sick, but we've said on this program before that there's several types of infection complications that children are getting, so they aren't without risk, and we all know that children also pass on the infection to adults. But in terms of what happens when they're going back to school, firstly, I think the big message to parents are that is that if their child is sick at all with fever or coughing or any type of sort of infection symptoms, um, um, diarrhea, um, difficulty with smell, um, any sort of symptom that you can't explain, they shouldn't be going to school. Likewise, if there's anyone at home that's unwell, don't send the child to school. You don't want to be passing it on. But of course, the extra anxiety around that is that we know um, people can pass on the infection two days before they actually get any symptoms. Um, So I think all the precautions being taken in the schools are, are totally so things like um, they're putting the desks two meters apart. Now there's even studies saying it might even need to be more than two meters apart for indoor spaces, but at least two meters apart. Regular hygiene breaks, which doesn't just mean going to the bathroom for kids, but also to um, have regular hand washing sort of exercises um, and, um, and and keeping a distance as much as you can. I'm, I, the teachers I speak to, Maureen, that have kindergarten, grade one, grade two type students, those are tough. Those children don't understand personal boundaries and don't understand personal space and how do you keep them sort of, um, you know, really far apart. But, but that's going to be something we do. And I think most people know that as of May 28th, so last week, a lot of the um, playgrounds and parks have opened up some of the swings, slides and so forth. So that's another area that we need to watch and that when kids participate on those that they wash their hands afterwards. It's going to require a lot of education or education in a new way. I had a couple of patients in my clinical practice this week. They were mothers of uh, teachers and one's uh, daughter was pregnant and so she was worried about going back to school but she was told she had to go back. And then another teacher was had a family relative who was immunocompromised. Um, you know, I, I know you're not a politician, <laughs> Um, But, you know, is it fair to insist that everybody go back? Uh, And I don't really know what the rules of the uh, unions are. I just know, uh, or the, the, you know, the BC Teachers Federation or other Teachers Federation, um, I just know what I have been told. And so some, some of the teachers are quite frightened to go back to teaching. And that's totally understandable. I think that um, especially those that have health problems themselves, have family members, children or parents that they're taking care of, I think that puts them into a high-risk group. My understanding, Maureen, just in terms of the policies and um, trying to avoid being a politician, but the policies are that um, surveys were sent out to educational assistants and teachers and and asked if they fell into one of those higher-risk groups. My concern, though, was that people who then fell into those groups were asked to take time off um, without pay and some um, had to use sick days and other things which aren't limitless and really puts a person at a disadvantage or pressures them to come back when they really shouldn't be coming back. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about or touched upon immunity passports. Now, that's not happening now. But um, first of all, can you describe what an immunity passport is and um, if it may be something we might see in the future? 
Yeah, some you may remember for, for some of our um, listeners, I was going to say older listeners, but anybody around my age who isn't that old yet, I guess. But if you traveled in the 70s and 80s overseas, you might remember that we had to carry this little yellow booklet, right? And it said in there that you had your various vaccines done and you wouldn't be allowed to either leave the airport or arrive at an airport, either leaving Canada or coming back into Canada or arriving in another country unless you had all your vaccines. Then somewhere along the way, I think we put more emphasis on personal liberties and said, no, you don't have to have the vaccine. It's entirely up to each individual to have them when they travel. That was the closest I think we came to an immunization type passport in the past, which was did you have the vaccine? But what you're referring to, Maureen, is that if the antibody testing is helpful, and we're not sure what that means yet, which is, you know, what is the right antibody level after you've been exposed or had the infection? Does that mean that you're safe and then you can go into large gatherings and travel? Um, we're not sure. We're not sure what that would look like right now. And is, would it be possibly some false confidence if the vaccine or that antibody level just isn't protective. Um, I think ultimately there probably will be some sort of um, system like that in place, Maureen. I can't, <clears throat> I can't imagine we're going to keep these um, sort of physical restrictions forever and maybe that's what people will need to have some confidence. But uh, um, an immunity passport is sort of wrapped with all sorts of social and sort of medical issues that would need to be addressed first. Uh, they certainly would be, and we'd also need to be ramp up the testing big time in a big way and, and also have some reliability on some of that testing, especially on the antibody testing, because we're not even sure, uh, if I understand this correctly, that if you have antibodies to this uh, COVID-19, how long they are effective or if they are even effective. Um, there's been a few people who've had, who have gotten or contracted COVID-19 twice. And it's too early to tell. And for our listeners, for example, if you said to your doctor, am I protected against chickenpox? Well, that's easy enough. I can order a blood test and check to see if you have antibodies high enough to protect you against an infection to chickenpox. We just don't know yet what that level might be. Um, the research is still um, sort of uncovering what it might be for COVID-19. And Maureen, what you said is, you know, is that is that antibody level okay for all different variants of the COVID-19 virus? Um, or if it falls below a certain range, are you at risk for getting the infection again? And that remains to be seen. And, you know, um, I think people think it's over. I've heard people actually say this. It's over. We're opening up. Um, But the virus is still very much with us. Correct? Well, that's the thing. You know, we've been in this sort of quote-unquote lockdown physical distancing, but that doesn't mean that our immune systems are any tougher or stronger to deal with the virus. So even though we've been behaving and we've been in our basements and haven't come out, you know, the idea that you could go and only it will just take one interaction with someone who has it for you to get it again. Ultimately, um, a vaccine would be the protection and that might be when we can think about um, breathing a sigh of relief. But up until then, there will be extra cases. And when you touched on one of the reasons people are concerned is that in Quebec, they did um, let children go back to school and some of us would argue they did it a bit too early because their number of cases were not, um, the curve was not flattening or going down as it is in BC. And so they did. They had in, um, 41 cases of children um, and, and others that ended up getting the infection. Um, so it just tells you that even after 
there was that physical distancing going back and um, did put people at risk. Now, we're knowing that there, there will be increased cases in BC, um, but we're feeling that the numbers will be low and hopefully we'll be in a position to quickly identify them and, and track them. And we'll see that in Alberta and we'll see that in Manitoba as well, Ontario. Um, we'll see that across the country because I, I, I think somehow people have this false sense of security that it's over, uh, we can come out now, we're all good, but we've just basically spread out the number of cases that we can expect in the context of social distancing and wearing masks and washing your hands. Would you say that's Absolutely. a fair and statement? And then when there's gatherings, I think the US, there was some of those big parties that happened over the U.S. Memorial Day. And now in addition to all the politics that go along with the protests, I think a lot of us are worried about what's going to happen in two weeks with all the protesters. Are there, is there going to be another spike just because people were not physically distancing? Joining me on the line is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He's not only a medical doctor who's dealing with COVID-19, uh, on the daily, he is also um, has a great TEDx talk that I recommend you all view called Fixing Racism. Racism is at the root of many of humanity's evils. He did it four years ago when he took to the stage to deliver that awesome uh, talk. And uh, it's it's we thought we were living in unprecedented times, Dr. Parhar, when we were dealing with a pandemic, but we're now dealing with an, a depression, a pandemic, uh, and also uh, unemployment rates, and and now we're seeing um, riots, which according to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the language of the unheard. Um, so thank you so much for being on the line, Dr. Parhar, and, and also being my friend, and I so value that. Um, and that's because of the segment that we're going into right now. Um, <laughs> dating is a big issue and you might be struggling to date. That's why I wanted to give away those products uh, because that can be a big issue. And so joining me on the line to share his own personal tragic story with dating in the time of COVID is Mo Amir. And he, you've heard his voice before from This Is Van Color. Good evening, Mo. How are you? Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. And can I just say... Mo and Mo talking dating on the Sunday Night Help Show. Does it get any better than this? It doesn't. It's Momo. It's the Momo Show. <laughs> I love it. That's my other nickname for people who know me really well. Not, not the ones who think they know Barbara Streisand version of me. Right. I'm sorry I gave out your secret. That's okay. I wanted me calling you Mo now. No problem. Not at all. There's the Mo group and then I have the Momo group. So not to worry. <laughs> anyway, but you and I, we're Momo. Um, so, and, and Mo, you're struggling, uh, with dating in a time of COVID you're, you're single and, um, and the rules have changed and it, it, uh, this is a, uh, virus that can be transmitted through respiratory droplets. So kissing is kind of out. Um, it's not the same as it used to be with swipe right, swipe left. There we go. The smorgasbord of available people for you. It, it's, it's quite different. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, I'm not a charity case again. I'm not struggling. <laughs> I'm adapting, Maureen. Exactly. You're adapting. Okay. <laughs> you were a charity case yesterday when we decided... No, I'm kidding. Um, but it, it is challenging, and it's it's very challenging, which is why I'm giving out those personal devices um, for some people. But So tell me about some of the biggest issues with uh, dating in a time of COVID. Well, I don't think there's been such a tectonic shift to the dating culture since maybe the advent of the swipe apps, which is 
over a decade old now. We've taken out bars, restaurants, gyms, yoga studios as ways to meet people because of the physical distancing protocols. So an extrovert like me, you know, I'm out there less. I'm out there less with my friends. I'm out there less with strangers, with my fitness community. You can still meet people online, but obviously, especially um, prior to some of the restrictions being lifted, you're not really meeting anyone in person. Um, But I think everyone's been pretty good with following Dr. Bonnie Henry's orders um the, the the challenge of course is you know do you actually want to put yourself out there when you can't meet someone someone actually did ask her recently about dating a reporter asked her about dating at one of her press conferences and you know she was very specific that this is not the time for serial dating this is not the time for casual hookups so if you were like me and you were single and maybe you were going out on a date or two every week just trying to meet people you know that that culture is kind of done Uh, You still can meet people virtually, but of course, even now with restrictions lifted, you have to be careful about who you decide to meet up with in person. There's almost a lot more investment involved. Exactly. And the other thing, talk about investment or, or the, the economic pressures that have been put on people. So there, there may be somebody who's lost their job, for example, and that may affect their self-esteem, how they feel about themselves. And, and so that also puts additional pressure on, on people. But you're, you've been going online meeting people or? Um... Not, you know, not really. I think during the lockdown, I sort of was uh, dipping my foot in the water and seeing what, what was out there. Uh, for me, actually, uh, I, I had been dating a little bit prior to everything being shut down. And one person who I saw once, <laughs> uh, we kind of just left it at like, hey, let's just keep in touch and, and see what happens. And so I have been going on dates now that some restaurants are open and that there is uh, some of those restrictions uh, lifted. With that particular person that you met the once prior to the pandemic. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and how's that going? Are you approaching it differently than you would have pre-pandemic when life was free and easy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's. I think that's a fascinating question. I think perhaps for myself, there is a lot more focus and attention towards that person than maybe there would be in the past, because I think that in the past, there were a lot of distractions in terms of you could just go online and meet someone on an app and, you know, two days later, you go on a date with them. So perhaps there is a little more emotional investment there. And I think there's also more focus on a, a, a more serious relationship as well. And it doesn't mean that now I'm tied to this person uh, or we're like locked in to date each other because of COVID. Uh, it just means that maybe I'm, I'm giving a little more uh, attention to this person as opposed to splitting my recreational dating time amongst a few people. Right. And, and it might change things. I have a, a caller on the line, Kevin from Calgary. Hello, Kevin. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. Did you have a question? Yeah, I'm just wondering if um, it's my girlfriend's birthday in a few days, and just wondering if you can, there's any transmission of COVID or anything with bodily fluids. Well, they are actually saying that, um, you know, kissing, it can be contracted through kissing, but if you're monogamous, are, are you living separately or living together? Um, we're separate, but we're just, 
faithful to each other. Right. But, but it's really about the exposure um, you have to other people. So, you know, have you doubled your bubble, as they say in British Columbia? Um, you know, are you either one of you healthcare workers? But, you know, the, the close proximity to another person, yes, it increases the risk of contracting the virus because, you know, the heavy breathing, Kevin, you know what I'm talking about, um, that, that length of time that you are with that person. But, but if each of you is careful, you're hand washing, you're physical, physically distancing, um, where you're wearing masks out in public because it might protect you, but mostly it's thought to protect others. Um, you know, but the monogamy certainly does help. Yeah, no, we're kind of like the cohort family. So, and we limit our, our exposure out outside of the house. Right, right. And then you have to wonder, is the benefit, does the benefit outweigh the risk? And so, you know, looking at the, the data and the numbers and, and the experiences. But thanks for your call, Kevin. That's fantastic. Right, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so Mo Amir, a single guy in the, in the time of COVID, <laughs> and also the host of a great podcast. This is Van Colors on the line, sharing his experiences. Um you know, I, I had a friend who went on uh, social media pre-pandemic, and she said all that men were looking for online was sex, and she decided to play them at their own game. And so she put on there, professional, 38 years old, um, I'm just interested in sex. That's what she wrote. And she got 500 responses. And so she said... <laughs> she I'm said, not surprised. <laughs> exactly. And so she said she'd just grab a glass of wine at night, and she'd just go through all the responses. And, um, you know, and but those days are over, right? <laughs> She did end up meeting somebody and she did like him, but he had a sexual health dysfunction. He had, he had erectile dysfunction at the age of 42 that he didn't want to address, um, which I always thought was just such a, you know, such a juxtaposition because here she had, you know, out of 500 men, she chose the one. And, and you know what the thing is, is probably a whole lot more men out there who have yeah. erectile dysfunction. So it wasn't just the one, but she happened to get one who couldn't perform, shall we say. And that's a big issue. But there's no more that 500, you know, try this one, try that one. That's kind no, of. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, as you mentioned on my podcast, actually, you know, the age of courtship is kind of returning, and getting to know someone and sort of focusing on them, I think, has come back as a result. <laughs> as a result of what's happening, because people are also very careful. You know, um, I think there has been a lot of social pressure to adhere to the social distancing protocols. So even if you're amongst your friends and you, during lockdown, you say, hey, let's get together, chances are a majority of your group would say, no, no, no we can't do that. And as a result, you, uh, you conform to that. So I think things have definitely been changing. And like I said, I think it's taken a, a big, uh, it's made a big shift in dating culture. You know, one interesting thing that, that came about uh, our podcast that we did on This Is Van Color was that I got DM'd by a listener who said that, and, and this is going to sound very funny, they went on the, their first date with their boyfriend recently. <laughs> so this is someone oh. that cultivated a relationship online. Wow. They were chatting over FaceTime, and their first date, they were already in an exclusive relationship with each other, which I think was pretty much unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um if, you know, if true. The other thing is, though, I have, I have a clinical practice and it seems to, to me, the, my, my perception anyway, is that the extramarital affairs are still going on. Um, for some reason, they're not having that fear 
<laughs> the desire <laughs> uh, trumps the fear for some strange reason. Um, but that's, uh, you know, you say a lot of people are abiding by the social distancing requests. And, um, but, you know, 10 or you know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I would say to somebody, how did you meet? And they would sort of embarrassingly say or say, don't tell anybody, but we met online. And, you mm-hmm. know, you, you say that today or two or three months ago, how did you meet somebody? And they say, oh, we met online. And it's just, you know, now it's like, um, how did you meet? Tinder, Bumble, they actually tell you the match. <laughs> Um, you know, they tell you where. And so it's it's really evolved over time. So are we going to, um, you know, see that, you know, what what's going to happen to that online meeting or, as you say, that courtship? Yeah, and you and I discussed this a little bit on our show, but I think that's going to continue to evolve. And perhaps people, people are going to do like a Skype date or a FaceTime date before they actually meet up. I know for me personally, anytime I met someone online, I did like to have a phone conversation with them because I felt like you could get a person's vibe a little bit better that way. And phone, just to be able to talk over the phone, there's a little more comfort. There's less hyper self-awareness that you get on FaceTime because you're also looking at yourself when you're FaceTiming, right. which can be very awkward. This, this is true. And who wants to do that? Um, exactly. That's yeah. why... I'm on radio. I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's why I do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, speaking of the phone, though, and I'm trying to get her to come on as a guest. I do have uh, somebody that I know who was uh, involved in kind of. Well, he was in a phishing scheme, so you've got to be very careful. She had actually never spoken to this guy on Facetime. She'd only spoken to him on the phone, and and then he actually claimed that he went to uh, the U.S. because his daughter had COVID and was in an ICU, and it was like. And he brought his dog on a private jet. And it's like, you know, normal things happen normally. And that just didn't sound too normal to me. And, and it wasn't. As it turned out, he, she had never seen him in person. So I think both. I think that's a great, um, you know, FaceTime and phone is, is a great uh, idea. And I think there's also some common sense. I mean, we call it common sense. But there's some discretion that you should uh, apply when dating online. I mean, if someone's asking for money or, or a certain request, even a request for intimate pictures, I think, can be, you know, a bit much when you've never met someone. Yep. So I would advise anyone, male or female, to just be careful online. There are a lot of scam artists or a lot of tricksters. And there are, as you sort of alluded to before, there are people online that are already in relationships. That's true. That's it. Oh, you, you think? Anyway, <laughs> half of them are married. Anyway, Mo Amir, thank you so much for joining me. Great advice. Uh, the podcast is This Is Van Color. Um, it's, it's awesome work that you do. And I really appreciate you sharing your, your story and providing some wisdom. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Keep You're in touch, Maureen. Same. Take care, Mo. Anger management expert and author. He's been working with people worldwide and professionally as a counselor, educator in the field of anger management. Alistair Moose joins me on the line. Good evening, Alistair. Good evening, Maureen. Great to be here. Oh, thanks so much for joining me. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to already invite you back for next week so we can dive into this because there's so much anger penetrating the world right now. We're seeing uh, riots going on in the U.S. Um, Talk to me a little bit about anger, uh, healthy anger, unhealthy anger, and how people, uh, what's good and what's bad about it. Well, anger is the guardian of our boundaries, and so... When our boundaries are crossed, and clearly with uh, George Floyd, some serious boundaries were crossed, or, you know, that's putting it pretty lightly, uh, people are supposed to get angry. And it just seems like people have been angry about 
people getting, you know, black people getting killed over and over again by white police officers, uh, it it just makes a lot of sense that the anger is there. Now, what, what they do with that anger, of course, makes all the difference in the world. And uh, I think people are fed up with trying to go by the right channels because clearly they're not being heard and nothing changes. Right. And we saw peaceful protests with Colin Kaepernick. And uh, and that was actually, ba- you know, he was basically... Um, you know, pretty much blackballed, lost his job and hasn't Mm -hmm. been able to be on a team. So, you know, some people are are complaining about what's going on there and and others are saying, you know, y'all didn't care about the, um, when, when we took a knee, um, you know, which was a peaceful protest. And, um, and, and now all of a sudden where these leaders are emerging and so they're disingenuous, um, you know, those who are in the NFL who actually took no heed um, when that occurred. This, this racism and this police brutality has been going on far too long. Um, what, what are some of the, I mean, obviously we're seeing many different displays of anger, but um, what, why are we seeing that? What's, what's be, belies all of that? Well, you know, one of the things that it makes me think about is when somebody's in a family and they're being mistreated and they speak up and nobody hears them and they speak up and nobody listens and they speak up and they don't just get uh, not listened to, but they get their words twisted around and thrown back at them. You know, for instance, if somebody is black and they're displaying anger. People just get completely freaked out by it. But black people have to express their anger. It's really unhealthy not to. But right now, it seems like there's this fear that if they do speak up with anger, that they're going to get dismissed or ridiculed or told, you know, their words are going to get distorted. So it leaves them no choice but to take it up to another level because eventually if things, uh, if nothing they do that's reasonable works, then the only option left is to do something unreasonable, right? Because, you know, even in a family, if somebody's never heard, eventually they're either going to completely shut down and, and disappear or leave, or there's going to be rage. There's going to be some explosion. And clearly right now, uh, in the U.S. and even someone in Canada, there's, you know, that that we're we're fed up with not being heard is, uh, you know, it, is it's a big statement when people are becoming violent. Uh, it, it certainly is, and we're seeing, um, you know, people don't even have to misbehave. They there was a there's so many stories on MSNBC and CNN and um, of of black men sitting in a car listening to a song the end of a song something I've done many many times in my life and then just being pulled out by police and and questioned and and falsely accused um, and there's so much hypocrisy now going on about this when there were leaders who could have done something and and didn't like like uh, Roger Goodell for example who's being called out for his hypocrisy but we're up against the clock Alistair I, w- I want to find out where um, people can can get in touch with you and I want to see if you can come back next week and we'll dive deeper into this. That that would be great. That would be great. Well, angerman.ca is uh is the website and uh you can always follow us Moose Anger Management on uh uh Instagram or or Facebook as well. And we'll, and we'll talk to you next week and I'll I'll get in touch uh in the next day or so and set up a time. Thank you Alistair so yeah, much. Yeah, great.
thank you for the work you do. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, never has uh, Alistair's work been more needed than in the world right now. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.